Good morning, Penn Valley Church family. It's great to be with you this Sunday morning, worshiping together with you. And thanks, as always, to the worship team uh, for leading us to the throne of grace this morning. We've been doing a series this summer on the most famous sermon ever preached uh, through, we see it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be continuing that this morning, but we're going to do something a little bit different as we get started. What I'd like to do is have a little bit of group participation time. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question as we get started. And I just want you to call out the answer you think of. When you think of the Sermon on the Mount, what passage do you think of first? What first comes to your mind? Go ahead, just call them out. Oh, louder, louder, come on. The Beatitudes, okay, what else? Anybody else have something that is not the Beatitudes? Nope? Okay. All right, well, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. You're going to see that question is going to play a role in the message this morning. But I want to start out with a little story that I recently read about. A gentleman by the name of Chuck Feeney. Last September, September 14th to be specific, he actually fulfilled his lifetime goal that he had been working at for over 40 years. At the time, he was just a few months short of 90, and what he had accomplished was something a bit unusual, not what we would generally consider a lifetime goal. You see, what he wanted to do, he and his wife Helga, they wanted to die broke. Now, I'm just going to let that sit in for a moment. Okay, so I see a few wives speaking to their husbands don't have that aspiration. That's understandable, right? Don't, no, let's look for something else. But it's not quite what it would appear. See, when I say broke, I'm not saying he was destitute down to his last penny. It's not that. You see, Chuck was an entrepreneur. And at the time he sold his first business, his share of it was worth over a billion and a half dollars. His net worth eventually got up to over eight billion, with a B, dollars. From the time he sold his first business until September 14th, he systematically went about liquidating all that money for a variety of charitable purposes. He didn't live, it wasn't like he and Helga spent all the money on the lifestyles of the rich and famous, if you remember that show from the 80s and 90s. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, a reporter who recently sat down with him said that his wardrobe was that of a monk. And he said that the two-bedroom apartment to live in resembled more of a college dorm room than the home of somebody who was famously wealthy. But that's not where the story ends, see, because what's unique about what Chuck and Helga did was not even just the fact that they gave away 4,000 times more than what they kept. 4,000 times more. It was how about how he went about doing it. You see, Chuck's goal was to actually give all his money away in secret. He had no intention of letting people know that he was actually doing it. And if it hadn't been for a lawsuit that was filed by a former business partner who was saddened by the fact that they sold their first company, it probably would have never come to light or Chuck would have made the effort for it to never have come to light. You see, he didn't have public affairs specialists like a lot do telling all the good things he's doing. He didn't ask for a statue to be erected. 
He didn't ask for his name to be put on the wing of a hospital or a dorm room at his alma mater. He simply wanted to be able to use the money he had been given over the years that he had earned to help out with a variety of causes he felt were important. So what is that story and what does my question at the beginning have to do with our message this morning? Well, let's stand together if you would and we're going to read in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, we're going to read the passage. It's only going to be four short verses that we're going to look at today from Matthew chapter 6. But before we go there, let's set a little bit of context and background just as a way of reminder. So in order to understand why Matthew chose to incorporate the Sermon on the Mount in these three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, you have to understand what Matthew's intention was in writing down his Gospel account. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and what he wants them to understand is that Jesus is the long-awaited king. He's the one who is the heir to David's throne, the one they had been waiting for, for decades and for centuries to come. And so we see at the beginning of Matthew, in the first chapter, we read this lineage of Jesus, and it has all these names that are hard to pronounce. Why does he include that? Because he wants you to see how it is that Jesus fits into the lineage of the kings. But he doesn't stop there. The next chapter is the story of the wise men who come to see him. And what do they identify him as? As king of the Jews. So Matthew is unequivocally trying to point us to the fact that Jesus is the king. So in that, with that context set, we look at the Sermon on the Mount. And we see it starts out with the Beatitudes, the one that was referenced, right? And it says, blessed, or we could translate it happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, who have been persecuted and reviled. Those don't seem like things to be happy about most of the time, do they? But he goes on, and then he brings to light the passages we've been dealing with over the last couple of weeks on anger, on lust, divorce, oaths, and retaliation. And he says, you've heard it said over and over. This is what you heard. But now I'm coming to show you something completely different. You see, Jesus' kingdom is a 180 of what we would expect. It was a 180 of what his original hearers would have expected. They expected a military leader that would finally break the yoke of the Romans on their back. That would rule in strength and in power the way that a normal king ruled in the day. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom's not like that. It looks vastly different. And so he goes about dealing with the flaws in the leader's teachings of the day. And that brings us to the passage we're going to look at today. Now, I have to be honest. When Pastor Dave sent out the outline for the summer message series, and I looked at today's, I was like, why is it only four verses? I mean, other than the fact that he knew I was preaching and he probably wanted to keep you guys here a shorter period of time. But outside of that, why only four verses? Because it really fits into the story not only of giving, which is what we're going to look at, but of the Lord's Prayer, which is perhaps the most famous portion of this Sermon on the Mount, and a teaching on fasting. They all connect together. 
But I think maybe, and I can't speak this for certain, but I, I'm appreciative of the fact that Dave only chose these four verses because as we said at the beginning when I asked that question, nobody said, oh, the first thing I think of is Jesus teaching on giving to the poor, right? And yet, Jesus specifically takes the time to talk about this subject, and Matthew specifically includes it in his gospel account with a purpose in mind. And that's what we want to get after this morning. So if you would, stand with me, and we're going to read together this passage. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your hand, left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees you in secret, will reward you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you have preserved for millennial. Thank you, God, that you've recorded it to expose us to who you truly are, and that you sent your son to this earth to reflect to us who you are. Father, we're apt, just like the religious leaders of the day, to miss the core tenets of the word and go our own direction, following after it like itching ears. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount and for the challenge you gave your original hearers 2,000 years ago and the challenge that you give us this morning. Please open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to receive your teaching that we might grow in your grace and in your love for us, I pray. In your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's have a seat and let's take a look at this passage. So Jesus is going to challenge us. He's going to challenge us not to just think about our actions in giving, but in our attitudes and motivations, which he's also going to do, as you'll see in the coming weeks, on prayer and fasting. That's what makes this section and this passage in particular that we're going to deal with this morning challenging. You see, if he had just said, give an X amount of dollars or an X percentage to the poor, we might not like the amount he asked but at least it would be clear and simple. But he's not concerned just about the act, but about our motivation behind the act. You see, after the Beatitudes, Jesus discusses topics with his hearers that they would have been familiar with. He, taught, he uses this phrase over and over, you have heard it said, right? And he goes through anger, but he says, you know, anger is so much bigger than what you think. It's really murder. He says, you've heard it said about lust, but he's like, lust is a lot bigger than you think it is. You've heard it said about divorce, but you know, they found an easy way out. They looked for the loopholes like Pastor Dave talked about a couple weeks ago. You've heard it said about retaliation, an eye for an eye, but he said, you know what? I'm calling you to love your enemies. He's turning everything that they thought they knew upside down. What Jesus wants his audience and us to understand is not just what we're to do 
or not to do in some cases. But he wants us to consider why and how we're supposed to do it. So let's keep that in mind as we look at today's passage. So there's three things I want to take a look at. Let's look at Jesus' perspective in looking outward in giving. Let's look at Jesus' perspective at looking inward when we give. And finally, let's look at Jesus' perspective on upward focus when we're giving. So looking outward when we're giving, looking inward, and looking upward. Looking outward. The first two verses read, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus starts with a warning. He says, beware. He's, he's meaning for us to listen with ears that say, okay, there's something important here, something maybe I'm not thinking about that I need to be aware of. And he says, he goes on, beware of practicing your righteousness. He says, do not do as the hypocrites do. Notice, he doesn't say, don't be like the religious leaders because they don't give, they don't pray, and they don't fast. They do all those things in abundance. Jesus isn't concerned about how much they're doing. He's concerned about why they're doing that. Because they wanted to make sure that when they gave, everybody saw it. They gave in the most conspicuous way possible. It would have been hard if you were watching not to notice just what they were doing. They wanted to be recognized. Now, what about you and me? How often do we do things, even if we might have a good motivation to start, it eventually becomes about attention to what we're doing, right? And let me give you an example from my own life. So a few years after we were married, my wife and I, every Christmas, she loved putting up the Christmas tree. And some of you have heard me tell this story. I hated it. Not because I hated Christmas or the Christmas tree, but I hated it because this, we had this huge Christmas tree. It was like seven or eight layers, and you had to put them all in individually, and then you had to put all the lights on and all the ornaments, and I just wanted to be outside doing the outside lights. That's what, that was my thing. That's what I wanted to do, right? So one year, after a few years of just feeling like, I can't do this anymore, I finally said, you know what? Steph's working tonight. She was working a second shift at that point, so she would get home at about midnight. I'm going to put this tree up entirely by myself, just for her, right? It was, it, was, it was a good motivation. And so I put it up, and the way that our house was laid out, the tree was connected to a switch right at our front door. So when she would come in, I know she would always turn the switch on, because that turned the light on, and it's midnight in December, so of course it's dark. And so I'm hiding. Our kitchen's just down the hallway. I'm hiding. I'm peering out, waiting for her because I want to see the look on her face when she sees the tree. She opens the door, flicks the switch. Expression on her face doesn't change at all. And so I'm like, she, she, she must have seen it, right? And now all of a sudden my attitude about it, my motivation is being exposed. So I take out my cell phone. I'm still behind the, the wall of the, the kitchen and I say, and this is awful, but I, I text her and I say, 
I think the words you're looking for are thank you. Ha! Now, for the young married men here, don't try that strategy, please. It does not work in any way. All right? And so she looks at her phone. She looks up. I come out. And she says, thank you, honey, for staying up. I'm like, for staying up? I put up this tree. It was four hours, right? My motivation, my attitude, even though I thought I started out well to do something to bless her, my motivation quickly got exposed, didn't it? And Jesus is saying, look, if you watch the religious leaders of the day give, their motivation's pretty easy to see. So as we look at each of these sections, as we look at the outward, the inward, and the upward, what I want to do is I want to look at the motivation, I want to look at the impact, and I want to look at the outcome. So let's do that here with this first one, the motivation. Their motivation was their reputation, right? They liked hearing the praises of man in everything they did. Well, look how great these guys are. Look at all that they do. Man, they really love God. Look at what they're giving. Look at the amounts that they're giving, right? Their motivation is their reputation. So what's the impact it has? And I want you to keep this in mind because this is important. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, which is all they would have had when Matthew was writing his gospel account, all throughout the Old Testament, we see constantly, time and time again, that God has a predisposition for the poor, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. He, had, he is actually, and, and I know we don't like to use this word too much, but he's discriminatory toward them. Not because he values them more or loves them more than anyone else, but because he knows that they're the easiest ones to slip through the cracks. Right? And so he has all these instructions throughout the, the prophet, the law, the, the psalms, the proverbs, about caring for the poor. Yet, here we see the religious leaders of the day giving perhaps vast amounts of money, but their motivation really actually makes the poor a prop. You see, because it's not about following God's instruction. It's not about caring for those he cares about. It was actually about seeking attention to bolster their reputation. And Jesus is very clear here what the outcome of this is. He says, the praise that they receive is their only reward. Literally, he says they've received their payment in full for what they've done. There's not gonna be anything else. Now see, they have a much different mindset about what they're doing and what God's response to it should be, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But he's saying, that's it. You're focused outwardly on your reputation and what others say about you, then any praise you may get from them is your only reward. Then he moves on because that's not the only side of the horse we can fall off of, right? We might not actively seek the praise of man. So Jesus goes a little bit further. And he says in the next verse, verse 3, but when you give to the needy, see, there's that expectation. He's like, you're going to give. So when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
Because Jesus understood it's not just the accolades of others that cause a problem for us. It's our own pride. So he says, he uses a metaphor. He says, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Don't congratulate yourself. If you watched the NFL playoffs this past year, you might remember that in the divisional round, which was the second round of the playoffs, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who eventually went on to win the Super Bowl, played the New Orleans Saints in New Orleans. And one of the plays that was run was a quarterback sneak where Tom Brady, who was over 40, runs into the end zone behind this massive offensive line of his. Right? And he gets up and he is excited about what he just did. So he's slapping guys on the helmet, on the butt, he's giving high fives, and then he comes up to the referee. And he wants a high five from the ref. And what's the ref do? He just kind of stands there, like, this is awkward, right? And never gives him a high five, right? Jesus is pointing to us and saying, look, we want the praise of others, we want their high fives, but oftentimes, we're pretty self-congratulatory too. We give ourselves a high five. Hey, wasn't that great what I just did? Did you see how much I just, oh man, I'm awesome sauce, right? And Jesus is like, there's a danger there too. The motivation behind that is pride, right? And you can look all exhaustively throughout the scriptures and see the impact of what pride does in the life of someone. Its impact, though, on the poor that they're giving to is a little bit different. See, for those who are looking for outward approval and recognition, their impact on the poor was just to basically use a them prop. Here, it's a more condescending attitude. You're not actively necessarily seeking the praise of others, but you're basically saying, you know how fortunate these people are that I'm giving, that I'm helping them out, as you congratulate yourself, which is the outcome. And just like with the praises of others, self-congratulations is the only reward we get. It's payment in full. We might pat ourselves on the back, tell ourselves what a great job we did, how thankful they ought to be, but Jesus says that's all you're going to get. So if looking outward toward the approval of others and looking inward and congratulating ourselves are not the direction, what is the direction we should head? Let's look at the last part, looking upward. He says, after he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he says, so that your giving may be in what? Secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. So he warns his hearers, right? He says, don't practice your righteousness and charity before others. Don't blow your own horn. Don't toot your own horn. Don't self-congratulate yourself on what a great job you did. He's again, he's showing us that his kingdom is different. He directs his hearers to give in secret. He wants them to still be generous. He wants them to still give to the poor regularly and to be involved in the lives of the poor and the marginalized. But he wants them to do it like Chuck Feeney. Now, one writer after they discovered the story of Chuck Feeney's life described him as this way. He said, he's the James Bond of giving. Right? He's always there, but you'd never see him. Right? That's how Jesus wants us to be. We're not supposed to be 
out there looking for accolades, but instead, he wants us to almost give in a way that we forget about what we've done. If we can't or won't do it without wanting others to know what we've done or feeling proud about ourselves, then Jesus says we've missed the mark. We've missed the mark. So if upward is the way to go, what's the motivation? It's listening to God and it's serving others. It's seen as uh, Paul said to the, his letter to the Philippians, consider others better than yourself, right? Don't view just yourself, but look to others, right? The outcome of when we look up is that we have an ear to hear what God's instructing us to do, and we have a heart that's willing to serve others. And the impact becomes we become free to serve others rather than ourselves. We're not looking for something out of it. We're looking to give, not to receive. And what's the outcome? Now, here's what Jesus says, and it's completely different. And we're going to come back to this part of the passage at the end again. But he says, we'll be rewarded by the one who sees everything. He says, make your attention the one of the audience of one. Not of the many, not of yourself, but the audience of one who sees and knows what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it. So how do we get to the point then, if that's the instruction that Jesus is giving, how do we get to the point of giving in secret? Well, I want to start by asking a few questions just to get an honest, it's kind of like getting your baseline, right? When you go to the doctor, they do a whole bunch of tests to see where you're at. Let's get a baseline of where we're at. And these are just questions for you to ponder and think about a little bit more. How often do I tell or want to tell others about my giving and other good deeds? How often do I want to find myself, uh, how often do I find myself wanting recognition for giving? Am I disappointed when no one recognizes my giving and good deeds? Am I proud of my giving and good works? How do I view the poor and others who are marginalized? How important is giving to them for me? Do the poor and marginalized need to express appreciation when I give to them and help them out? Am I quick to forget what I give or do? Or do I keep a record and expect others to keep a record too? And lastly, does God need to bless me for my giving or am I blessed that I am given the opportunity to give and serve others. So just some questions again to kind of help us think through where are we at? And sometimes we're kind of all over the place, right? But this is just to get an honest assessment for ourselves. But it's really grace that is the changing power here, right? And so I want to look at three quick things with you. The work of grace and how that transforms us to be able to listen and hear what Jesus is saying in the and to follow through on it. First, grace produces joy. That passage that's referenced there comes from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. And, and the context of that is Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which is a well-to-do overall, metropolitan, 
city area of the time. And there is a famine going on in Jerusalem. And so he's taking a donation to help the Jerusalem church out. And the Corinthians looked really good. They talked a really good game, it seems, about how they were going to give and help out. And yet they didn't follow through. So Paul says to them, he says, you know, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia wasn't high society. They were a poor area, not a wealthy one, but this is what he says. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. He doesn't disassociate, but he connects them together. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, meaning Paul's first-hand knowledge, as I can testify, they gave beyond their means. What led the Macedonian church, though they were poor and had very little, especially compared to the Corinthians, what led them to give excessively to the church at Jerusalem? It was the joy that God's grace had created in their life. They were like, I get to do this? And Paul's like, listen, you guys don't have a lot. No, 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 we want to give. And then they come up with the offering, and Paul's like, you could almost imagine Paul being like, this is too much. And they're like, no, 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 we want to give even more. Right? It was because of the joy that had been established in their life as the freeing work of the gospel of Jesus Christ took root more and more. But grace doesn't only produce joy in us. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list. It also produces forgetfulness. And this is one of the keys, I think, to being able to give in secret, is to be able to forget what we've done afterward so that we're not expecting accolades and we're not patting ourselves on the back. And listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. It's a famous passage. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's the gospel. There's the work of grace in Paul's life. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's easy to think in that passage that Paul is probably referencing things he wishes he could have done differently in his life, things that he didn't do well, sin that he committed, and yes, he is forgetting those things, but he's also forgetting the good things. He's not... He's not focused on them. He's not looking back at them saying, look at all I've accomplished. He's looking ahead to the one who's given him grace and the day that he will be with him. So grace produces joy. It produces forgetfulness. And it produces intimate relationship. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6 talks about how God predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He adopted us. He had no legal requirement. He didn't have to do this. He intentionally pursued us in his grace so that we could be close to him relationally. That's a game changer. 
And that's kind of where Jesus ends. Now, there's a part of this passage in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, that we haven't looked at yet, and I, I mean, really haven't explored. And I want to go back and do that, because this would have been something that would have been a big deal for those who heard it, but I don't think it is for us. I think it's something we easily could read over, not thinking a whole lot about. So let's look at verse 1, and let's look at the end of verse 1, and let's look together at the end of verse 4. Here's what Jesus says at the end of verse 1. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then at the end of verse 4, he says, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. As Jesus is teaching, he's clear to identify in this teaching that God is the Father. He doesn't say God the Creator. He doesn't say God the Lord. He doesn't even say God the King. Even though... All those things are true. God is our creator, and we're, we belong to him. He is our Lord, and he rules over us. Yet Jesus goes to a family term and refers to him as father. See, it's subtle, right? You can read through that, and we don't think anything of it because we hear about God being our father all the time. Yet if you were the first hearers of this message, of this Sermon on the Mount, to hear God referred to as your father, that's not how the religious leaders of their day spoke. He's saying there is a tender, loving father. Your father. You see, I think he does this for a particular reason. This is just my take on it. But there's two ways that we can interact with God in a situation like this where we're talking about giving. One is we can interact with him like he's our boss. The other is we can interact like he's our father. Now, if you're an employee, right, you interviewed for the job. And if you were fortunate enough to get it, you probably worked really hard in a way that was apparent of all that you were doing. And you probably, as you took on more and more, you had the expectation that your employer was going to compensate you in some way for that. But that's not how we generally interact with our dads, is it? Or at least we hope we don't interact with our dads that way. Because the first one is a transactional relationship. I give you something and I get something in return. But that's not how relationship is meant to function. And what Jesus is talking about here is a relational interaction. Now, maybe some of you have had a dad who was distant or knew of someone whose dad was distant. Maybe he worked a lot. You know, he worked an excessive amount of hours or he worked far away. And maybe he wasn't there very much, but maybe he gave, like, you know, to make, kind of make up for it, he gave, like, elaborate birthday parties or he gave elaborate gifts or he did things for his kid, but not with his kid. Right? Let me ask you, if you grew up in a situation like that or knew somebody like that, do you think they would have traded all those gifts and other things in for a tender relationship with Because I think most would. 
I think most people, even if they don't realize it, value the, the intimacy of relationship, or at least want to experience it. See, the reward that Jesus is promising here in Matthew 6 isn't more things, even good things, that are eventually going to rot, decay, die, or be thrown away. So think about it. Think about the gifts you've been given over the years. Maybe there's a handful that you still have left that you still value. But all the things you asked for across the years at Christmas and birthday and other holidays and special occasions, where are they? Maybe they're in a, a tub in the basement or maybe they've already been thrown away, right? And they were something that you wanted deeply at the time, but over time, they didn't hold their value to you. But relationships are meant to hold their value. And I think a great example of this that I, I think of when I think of what Jesus is talking about here, that we have a Father who's also our Creator, who's also our Lord, is some of you will remember this at least. Um, there's a couple famous pictures from when John Kennedy was president with him, with his son, or when his son was around. Probably the most famous one was after his assassination, where you see John Jr. standing, saluting the coffin as it passes by. But there's another one that's really famous, and I think some of you will recognize it when you see it. It's a President Kennedy working at his desk in the Oval Office, and underneath in the resolute desk that he sits at is an opening, and you see his son playing there. Now, let me ask you, if you were to go to the White House with your children, and you were allowed, for some reason, allowed into the Oval Office, and they started playing under the President's desk, what would happen? Right? Some nice gentlemen in suits with short haircuts and an earbud would be coming up to you. And they would be escorting you out, right? Why wouldn't they do that with him? Because even though President Kennedy was in fact his son's president, he was also his father. And his love muted those other attributes of who he was in relationship to his son. God's love makes his position of creator and Lord, it gentles it in how he interacts with us as his children. So here's where we're going to end, where we always should end, right, with the gospel. So Jesus is instructing us here not to live for the praises of man. And during his earthly life, we see that Jesus himself doesn't live for the praise of man. In fact, the Apostle John, when he writes his gospel account, and I think it's John chapter 2, says that Jesus did not commend himself to men because he knew what was in them. He knew how fleeting the praises and the accolades of men are. Because one day he would be entering Jerusalem and the cheers would be, Hosanna to the son of David. And a few days later, some of those same people would be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus himself in his earthly ministry is constantly interacting relationally with his father. 
Sometimes we see it when he's praying. Other times it's when he's becoming really popular and he, he gets out of town and he goes out to a remote place and he spends time with his father, just the two of them. And that had an impact on his earthly ministry, didn't it? Because what do we see Jesus constantly doing? He's constantly interacting with the poor and the marginalized. He's constantly welcoming sinners, right? Because that's the charge against him by the Pharisees. You eat with these people. And yet that doesn't stop him from doing it. In fact, he does it all the more. Right? Relationally, his relationship with his father during his time on earth drives him to be generous with the poor and with the marginalized. To be part of their life and to let them into his life. Yet instead of being rewarded, because let's be clear, at the end of verse 4 of chapter 6 of Matthew, it says, God who sees us in secret will reward us. But instead of being rewarded for that, what happens to Jesus? He eventually is put to death. Why? Why? So that one of the things that would be produced in our life is exactly what he's talking about here in Matthew 6 that we would be able to give ourselves generously to others, not for the praises of man, but in praise to the eternal Father who loves us and pursues us at great cost to himself. Let's pray. As the worship team comes up, I want you to take to heart this message this morning, not because it was spoken eloquently, because uh, it wasn't, but because it points us to a relationship with God that changes us deeply, that gives us a different perspective. Much like hearing these words to the first century audience that Jesus spoke to changed them. So Father, we pray as we continue to worship you this morning, help us to worship you with hearts that are lifted and freed by grace. Hearts that are freed to serve and love and give to others in a way that we don't expect anything in return. The giving itself is actually the gift. We don't expect others to praise us for it. We don't want to praise ourselves for it, God. We want to rest in the fact that we are your kids and that you love us. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and hearts to see more clearly this Jesus who did everything right and yet was put to death on a cross so that we might praise the Father and give us hearts that are wide open to doing that this morning. For those, Father, who maybe are challenged by this message and the questions that were asked, God, I pray in your tenderness and in your mercy, God, you would expose to them the change in the heart that you want to do and give them a confidence that you will do it. And Father, help us to live lives that are generous because generosity has been poured out upon us through Jesus. We pray this all in his precious and holy name. Amen.